Welcome to In Focus, a deeper look into protecting email, the cyber weapon of choice, sponsored by Proofpoint and Optive. Here's your host, Tom Timmon. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Ping Look. She's Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optive. Bhagwat Swaroop is Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. Sean Lang is Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Commerce. And Cameron Dixon from the National Cybersecurity Assessments and Technology Services Branch at the Homeland Security Department. Great to have you all. Our topic today in general is email. And email is one of those durable products, durable functions, durable services that no matter what else comes in the way of channels of communication among people and between people, between agencies and the public and among agencies, email is still king. And therefore, I guess we can understand that email is still the primary vector for so much cybersecurity mischief. So why don't we begin by just getting from the government people to begin with an idea of what is the email picture look like? right now in terms of cybersecurity because it's a moving target. Very different, I would say, from five years ago, certainly from 10 years ago or before that, those of us that can remember the dawn of email. Uh, what does it look like today? Why don't we start with you, Sean? Well, it's a, uh, to say it's a valued asset at any organization is an understatement. Uh, one of the uh, key parts of uh, our organization is making sure email is flowing. Um, whether it's uh, messages from members of Congress or uh, the American public, we have to make sure the, the email is flowing and uh, with that, make sure that all the messages get in. Unfortunately, with that, you see lots of malicious actors sending anything from crimeware to uh, various uh, advanced persistent threats via email. So it used to be documents, links, now it's uh, just about anything that can be weaponized within a message. Interesting, because people forget the Library of Congress. They forget the of Congress part often. And you are a place where Congress routinely uh, checks in, and we need this book, we need that document. Uh, sometimes the members even come to different facilities to do research, or their staff does. And so is, is there email coming specifically from Congress? I'm just curious about this. That is anything but routine or simple requests for documents or books or whatever they might need in their research? Uh, yes, uh, actually the Congressional Research Service handles research for members of Congress from anything uh, that they could want to know about. So routinely they'll have emails come in from various members of Congress asking, I need information on this topic. And CRS has to re respond uh, to those requests in a timely manner. So it's important that A, they receive the request, so we can't be so uh, protective that the request gets... Into the spam box. Uh, exactly. Or that there's some kind of delay. So they're expecting an answer rather quickly, and we have to be responsive. Of course, we do also have to worry about a you know malicious actor using that trust to send in malware or other some other piece of... Uh, or being an imposter, saying this is Senator XYZ, and it's really... You know, yep. somebody from Russia or who knows where. Correct. Okay. And uh, Cameron, Homeland Security, and we're going to get into depth about uh, the nature of the binding operational directive with respect to the DMARC standard, but that's for later on in the conversation. In general, Homeland Security protects uh, civilian systems and the government, works with DOD. Email is a big topic. So we tend to think of email as the universal file transfer protocol. Um, it is the easy way where I can send and receive messages anywhere. Um, it may be more difficult to set up some kind of file share or even something external, um, but we tend to presume that what we send gets delivered. Um, that has both offensive and, and, and just regular nor uh, normal uh, reception of information properties. So that can be weaponized, as Sean was saying, uh, both within the email itself or links uh, that you're trying to incentivize people to click on. Those can be really damaging, but we still have this anticipation that what's sent to us we want to receive. And so for those that are in the flow of that email as part of the delivery chain, it's a, it's a delicate balance. Do we, do we block this email? Do we not deliver it at all? Do we just mark it as spam? Um, particularly for those receivers that are expecting something, it can be really frustrating. I know, I know it was sent. Where is this? Where did it land? And so agencies have to play a real delicate balance sometimes as, in figuring out where, where that balance lies. 
Yeah, too, and I guess uh, part for many agencies that need to communicate with the public, I'm thinking of the IRS, but there are others, they simply don't use email for that channel because of the opportunity for mischief and insertion of, of spoofing and so on. That's right. Often they, they don't email directly, but they certainly have the capability of doing so. Um, one of the things that's important to understand, I think, is that the reason that the government operates is for the citizens. Um, we, we do that so that we can serve them and we can provide them services. And if, if the capability of sending an email uh, to them appears to be malicious, that impacts citizen trust. Uh, we want them to trust the government because if they can't trust us, the government really cannot function. Mm -hmm. So we, we really want to incentivize uh, careful and thoughtful deployment of security and email such that when it's received by citizens, they know that this is legitimate. Yeah, and I think that's really the crux of almost everything having to do with email these days. And Bhagwat, that's your specialty at Proofpoint. And looking across the customer base, maybe compare commercial state of affairs with federal or public sector state of affairs because I think everyone at some level is battling with email security issues. Yeah, I think there are a couple of interesting things here. One is we see billions of messages every day and email is really how business communication is done while there are other means as well. And we see the digital communication right now is going through a trust crisis. People, if they can't trust that the right content and sender is sending the message that they can't really conduct the business effectively. So in our mind, what we really see it as, um, to make sure there's maximum security, you need to have trusted content as well as trusted sender. And we see the entire industry is on a very vast spectrum here. There are, there are ways to implement uh, policies and procedures in place which will ensure a safe communication. But I would tell you that today, we see billions of dollars of uh, losses every day. The attackers have moved on from not just relying on malicious attachments and URLs, but also, as you talked about, imposter and social engineering. So while there are a lot of these attack vectors emerging, I want people to know that there are deterministic ways to solve this problem. And it starts with discipline. Starts with discipline around authentication, starts with discipline around making sure we have the right safeguards in place to scan the content before it gets delivered. Yes, and also, what about user training? I think, I mean, people can self-direct right. a lot of the uh, safety that's required in yeah, a large organization. Right. For any program to have long-term sustainable impact, you want to make sure there is a people process technology answer, and user education is paramount, is, is important. We see that 90% um, of the malware gets delivered uh, through malicious URLs, and most of these clicks happen within the first hour of it, so I think user education is, is important. But I would also say that any security program which just relies on end user to do all the heavy lifting is not bound to succeed in the long run. This is where automated at-scale solutions are important uh, backbone of sustainable security. Okay, and uh, Ping, Optiv has, a, again, a, an overall view of this whole thing, and how, how, do you, how are you seeing email fit into the general security context of the way organizations are dealing with their, their total cyber, uh, cyber picture? Well, it's really difficult because, as many have said, email is our primary method of communication, right? It's also our favorite method for attackers to you know, attack an organization. And the problem is, as much education and awareness you give them, you still do need to have technology bound to it because I can try to teach users to read the headers, you know, double check, but the problem is we are inundated with emails, you know, millions of emails a day, billions, you know, in some organizations and they, they one little letter that's off from someone's domain name, someone can read the domain as much as they want, but they're going through their emails quickly. And sometimes when, now that we're moving towards mobile devices as also being people's primary method of checking their emails while they're on the road or on the bus, whatever, it, though I would say that those controls are not as robust as if you're at a desktop machine. And you can't restrict everybody to, we quarantine everything, go through your little quarantine list, safe list it, not safe listed. And those lists are also dependent upon how tight are the policies surrounding those lists. So when a company has lax security or uh, unfortunately a lot of people like to trade in convenience for security and that's the biggest problem, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to email. We want to go fast, we want to be able to check on every device we have. 
Um, we want people who we know, we supposedly know and trust, always to get through because we want those messages. We want to be able to conduct our business. Um, we do things where we always say tag your emails external versus internal so that you can at least trust your internal domain. But even those things can easily be broken, right? So every time we come up with a way to say, be more aware, mm -hmm. the attackers come back with a trickier way. They have, you know, it used to be really evident, right? You'd get some Nigerian prince email with misspelled right, words sure. and bad grammar. Now you can get something from Bank of America or the IRS that looks completely legit. It's the right logo. It looks like it comes from the right domain. Um, it has your name in it. It has all sorts of personal information because how many data breaches have we seen in the last year alone? Um, and they're very, very difficult to identify. So in the context of security, it is actually getting more difficult to secure it, right? Mm -hmm. Just training general users to be more aware. Before they were, would be more easily spotted, now we actually have difficulty identifying legitimate emails from fake emails. And I can have two of them sitting right next to one another and going through all the headers, looking at all the back code, and even for someone like me who I look at these emails day in, day out, it's very difficult to identify. Yeah, I'm getting that right now from an ISP that long ago took over an ISP, which right. then swallowed a third ISP, and they're saying, you got to change your settings, and I don't know if they're really contacting me or not. <laughs> so I guess this operates at the individual and the organizational level. And that idea of the authentication of the sender, that indicates that there are different motivations. Uh, for example, you know, when you got the Nigerian Prince type of email, and they still come occasionally, mm -hmm. uh, you were you're going to send money somewhere, uh, or if it was the case of some interesting attachment, that was the insertion for malware because you, you can embed these things in JPEGs and PDFs and all sorts of things. But the latest kind of uh, iteration of this imposter implies that uh, it's organizational data that you would normally send to the person that sent you, that ostensibly sent you that email. That's kind of a new twist on all of this. And so I guess let me ask you, Sean, what, what, uh, what types of motivations are you seeing creeping into email attacks that might not have been there earlier? Well, a lot of it is to, for an entity, be it nation state or a crimeware organization, to actually get a foothold on the network. So they want access to your data, whether it's, in our case, um, correspondence to Congress or information, copyrighted information, uh, anything that can be monitorized, someone's going to want. So uh, we see attacks that range from the, the clumsy, hey, click on this link, all the misspellings, to something that I would look at and say, as a librarian, I'm going to click on this. This is something that's so enticing, and then trying to play that, that game of, you know, oh, it's Christmas time. Let's send out all the alerts saying, by the way, if you didn't, you're not expecting anything from Amazon, that email probably isn't from Amazon. Or IRS down, around tax time, we do the same thing. Hey, that email might not be. Um, so we do have to rely on the end users at least sometimes, uh, as well as a lot of security controls. But we're finding, as, uh, as everyone has actually said, with the reliance on email, things like blocking password-protected zips which prevents a lot of attacks, um, is great except for everyone who has a legitimate need for it. And we have other federal agencies and other um, commercial clients that that's how they trade um, their protected information via password protected zip, and we can't block that because that's a delay in work, and it could be either something that a copyright holder needs an answer on, and copyright has to respond to that. So. We have to be flexible, um, but we're seeing a lot of different financial and uh, industrial type motivations when they come to uh, sending attacks. Yeah, so Sean, it's, I mean, excuse me, Cameron, it sounds as if uh, where false positives were the danger, now false negatives uh, threaten to impede the operation of organizations because, uh, well, because of the way Sean just described it. When, uh, when we tend to think that email, what we send, is going to be delivered, and that um, and using it as a file transfer, often what we need to do is figure out what the core need is and maybe set up some other service such that it can facilitate the need. So if, if there's a desire to share large files or a set of sensitive information, it may be the case that email is not the best kind of transactional 
uh, interaction to, to solve this issue. Because otherwise, you are going to play a game of your security administrators trying to figure out, uh, OK, you, you need access to uh, encrypted zips, or uh, we're, you know, we, we automatically block those, or we ensure that any passworded, uh, password protected files, that we're not going to deliver those. Um, so it can become a battle of you know, what's, what's the right approach here. I, I think if you look holistically at your user, at their, at their needs, uh, it may be the case that maybe email isn't the best, best solution uh, for that particular use case. But then again, there's still another type of case, uh, Bogwatt. Suppose I'm posing at, and I get in with the right you know, return address, right. seemingly, and I'm the president of Proofpoint. And uh, hey, where are you going on vacation? Uh, where will you be parking your car? Can we help you out in some way or that type of thing? I'm just making this up. Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of new attack where you say, oh, yeah, we're going to XYZ. We're leaving right. on this flight. And suddenly someone has a whole lot of information that could lead to a robbery or stealing your car or gosh knows what. I mean, is, is that what we're seeing also? We're beginning to see that. I think it's, it's really interesting. Um, tell me, what, what are the birthdays of all the people in your department? And, and today, it's actually easier than ever before with the rise of social media. You can actually find a lot of information about the organization, about the org structure, as well as, as public appearances in an event like that. Also, you could easily find out. I mean, there are a couple of things we see. One is that 9 out of 10 ad advanced attacks come through email. Not because it's easy, but because it's effective. This goes back to the point of, of digital uh, trust being uh, the paramount thing at play. Second thing, uh, again, on the good side is also email is the most effective place to stop the attacks as well. If you look at a kill chain, the further down the chain you go from network to email to endpoints, by the time it goes further down, the damage is largely done. It's very, very expensive for organizations mm -hmm. to actually clean up. Now, if we come back to the point around imposter, we see many different ways that people pretend to be your trusted advisor or be someone who they're not. Sometimes they would actually have a different reply to address. Sometimes they would have a different display name appear where the actual email address is something different. But it, it is very easy to hijack somebody's domain and uh, you know download a spoofer from the web to do that. So we see all sort of these attacks. We do also see quarter to quarter attackers change tactics because they want to keep, keep it fresh. They would use display name spoofing in one and then and the domain spoofing in others. Um, and the new thing that we see from time to time also is that they would insert themselves in the middle of a communication. So it's not the first time I would send you an email, hey, Tom, uh, what's your plans are? I would say, hey, as we discussed last time, pursuant to our conversation, and they would actually have entire, sometimes a fake email communication. So again, all the ways to build trust. And we see that attackers then utilize that to not only gain access to the individuals, sometimes it is to get monetary damage, but uh, sometimes it is to get access to information, which is critical to your organization. Okay, on that note, we're going to get to you, Ping, right after this break. Uh, but it's, we, we need to take a break right now, now that we've admired the problem now here for some <laughs> time here. Uh, the guests today are Ping Look, Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optiv. Bhagwat Swaroop is Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. Sean Lang is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Congress. And Cameron Dixon is National Cybersecurity Assessment and Technology Services IT person at the Homeland Security Department. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Protecting Email, the Cyber Weapon of Choice, sponsored by Optiv and Proofpoint, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Proofpoint's email fraud defense allows your team to identify legitimate email senders and block fraudulent messages before they reach your inbox. Optiv provides actionable industry-supported security program experience to integrate your technology investments into your environment. Together, they combine powerful email defense and security solution insight so you can detect, adapt, and respond to threats faster. Gain confidence around the security of your email domain with a streamlined and business-aligned solution with Optiv and Proofpoint. Welcome back to our discussion, Email, the Cyber Weapon of Choice, sponsored by Optiv and Proofpoint here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Ping Look, Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optiv. Bhagwat Swaroop is the Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. Sean Lang is Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Congress. 
Cameron Dixon, National Cybersecurity Assessments and Technology Services IT Specialist at the Homeland Security Department, and Captain Michael Dickey, Commanding Officer of the Coast Guard Command Control Communications and IT Service Center. And I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Before the break, uh, Peng, you were going to talk about the uh, damage that email attacking can do, I guess, commercially and reputationally. Yeah, sometimes I think that now there are a lot of attacks just for a type of industrial espionage where they're damaging a person's brand or a company's brand, right? They want to embarrass their competitor or they want to get information out of them, right, that they can then use to their own advantage. So it's grown from where back in the day, 20, 25 years ago, people did things because they thought that there would be financial gain from it. Now they can just do it to break people's trust. Right, get you to distrust the people who you should be trusting. Someone who was a prospective partner is now your prospective enemy. Um, and it just drives a wedge, right? And it prevents business from being easily done because who can you trust, right? And unless you can go through and do the forensic evidence and prove that, oh, it was a spoofed email, then you think to yourself, what can you actually discuss, right? And mm -hmm. when you have a discussion, does it always have to be, on the phone, face to face, do we just get rid of email, right? Which is now our way of main way of communicating, um, and it's tough because even text messages, right? You think that you're actually getting an email from your mom or your dad, and it's not. It's some guy who's trying to get your bank account so they can empty it out. So it's really tough. All right, and uh, I wanted to ask Captain Dickey, uh, you know, in the C three context, how does email fit into there, and what are the particular cybersecurity issues? that you're seeing in that context in a, I guess, homeland security, quasi-military type of setting for email? So we're d definitely a military setting for the Coast Guard. And uh, while email started out as, as completely an administrative tool uh, with, with no specific intent in mind, it has absolutely become a command and control tool. And uh, because of that, one, one of uh, the concerns that we really need to continue to pay attention to is, is exactly that of trust. When, uh, when a Coast Guard unit receives an email from a, a, a commander in, in their chain of command, they need to be able to trust that, that the email received is, is from who, uh, who it uh, appears to be from. Uh, so we, we enforced signing of, uh, of emails. Uh, that that has has still been a challenge for with uh, mobility um, to to actual you know sign in and encrypt and and receive you know signed in encrypted emails. But uh, so we're focusing on that with our our mobile devices. Uh, but uh, email is absolutely now a command and control tool. Okay, so that uh, that means that operational orders come via email instead of through some. Old-fashioned mean that might have been well, the old-fashioned means would have been uh, record message traffic and and we had uh, you know very robust um, message mm -hmm. systems like auto din uh, that type of thing absolutely so <laughs> not too many people can talk about auto din anymore because uh, very few people actually understand what it is so uh, e email has has become the the kind of default method of of command and control and uh, and we we still have some uh, record message systems. But uh, that's not the tool of choice. Okay, interesting. So yeah, it really has crept into, as we said, all communication. And so I guess uh, moving on to the notion of how you correct all this, how you get your arms around this, Bhagwat will ask you the first question. I guess it begins with visibility mm -hmm. into what's happening in email uh, at some level, and explain that for us. Yeah, I think there are two aspects of that. One is you can't fix what you can't see, and I think it's important for organizations to realize you need visibility not only within the organization, but outside the organization as well. So today, um, most people think of email as an attack vector that it's only targeting your employees, but one of the trends we have seen across the industry, and as I meet with customers around the world, it's quite persistent that the bad guys are targeting not only your employees, they're targeting your business partners, they're targeting the supply chain. There are more ways than one to disrupt the organization. Mm -hmm. So, and I think this is where DMARC and some of those protocols become an interesting discussion point to get visibility within the organization as well as outside. Second thing I would say is that how do you translate that visibility into actionable intelligence? That an organization can meaningfully take action in a short amount of time to ensure that the communication flows through. This is where we rely on machine learning based technologies to parse through the vast amount of data mm -hmm. to basically figure out what's a suspicious sender, 
versus the legitimate sender who's failing authentication for a variety of reasons. And I think this visibility is super important to build awareness uh, and, uh, and the right level of prioritization within the organization. Now, the machine learning is necessary because of the sheer volume of data. I mean, when you get a returned email, look how much text there is just regarding the, the behavior of that return right. or bounced email. So is it simply because of the volume or because the machine learning can detect information and trends about all of that data? Not it's actually both. So it's not just volume alone. So volume is one of the factors, but there are heuristics-based methods that people can apply to that. As we have seen the rise of social engineering, right? I think this is where using natural language learning algorithms comes in handy because you need to have systems which train on, on the data itself. As attackers move dynamically, we need our system to evolve in a very dynamic environment. And that's where we use machine learning, which relies on not one or two, but a variety of parameters and the dynamic change of relationship between those to detect what's suspicious. So a good example could be, I am seeing something coming from an IP address, and now I suddenly start to see things which are passing signature, but coming from a different IP address. Or certainly the text string and the kind of asks you make are typically different than what you have made in the past. And it really goes down the part of how do you do anomaly detection at scale in an automated way. What's your normal behavior? What's anomalous? And to be able to do that at scale, this is where artificial intelligence and machine learning really comes in handy. And then the other issue becomes for people to understand without seeing all the noise, but just getting the actionable information. So, uh, Ping, how does that all fit into the many other dashboards that CISO <laughs> staffs have to look at? Because they could have a thousand dashboards for every capable tool. Well, there's so many people that are involved in the chain, right? There's the endpoint people, you have your instant response people. And then for the general user, um, you know, we use tools where, yes, we do mark if an email is external or internal, but we also, you know, utilize quarantine lists. So we do rely on users to be going through those lists and saying, you know, was I expecting email from this provider, this partner, this person? Because unfortunately, as Cameron and Sean have said, people want to receive the email. They want to be getting the communication, right? So we do have to rely on them. And so we work really hard on educating users to look closely, right? And we also do initiatives where, you know, during certain times of the year, where we're like, you should not be receiving your IRS scam email or your Amazon, no one should be doing personal business on Amazon anyway, <laughs> um, um, with their uh, company accounts, right. things like that. So we do a lot of initiatives, and we do it throughout the year, right? It's constant, and you have to be constantly communicating with them. And when we see new scams come out, we always push out communications and try to do initiatives around those because we realize that they're acceptable, right? And not everyone's seeing the same things. Sales teams will see things differently than finance people who will see things differently than the IT people. But I do a lot of our own internal testing, and I always know what will get them, the shiny new nut that, that mm -hmm. IT people are attracted to, or the kind of incentives that drive salespeople. So we also do additional training around those to make them more aware. And you know, we always make it a positive experience, right? We do not hit people with a stick. We're like, okay, if I can get you to do this, what is someone else who's really trying really hard and knows that you know it's getting close to the holidays? You want a bigger bonus, um, and you and we list our partners on our website, so that already becomes another harvesting part where social engineers can say, "Oh, these are the partners. I will hit up every person that is at your company to see if they want to get this bonus if they sell the product." Right. So, unfortunately, we make it easy for attackers. But then we have to do our, our end, have our automated machine learning technologies in place, and educate the users, right? So you've got to just keep at it. And it's sometimes you feel like a gerbil in the wheel, but oftentimes you are very successful. We have a lot of good success stories with both our clients and internally. Okay, yeah, Sean, how does that work? Uh, the analysis and then the feedback to the users? Because we're talking about end user education, but I think earlier we also said that if you can head off these things from ever coming in in the first place, that's even better than training users as they get through. So how do you balance all of that? Uh, well, it's, it's a uh, very difficult tightrope to walk. One of the issues is, of course, we have to assume that the malicious message will eventually get in. The attacker will break one of the various walls that are up and one of the other areas of defenses is 
course going to be the workstation and the end user itself. So uh, we have alerts that set up if a message behaves strangely. An email had a PDF, the PDF did something, and that something's doing a call out. So all of a sudden it meets criteria and then um, different alerts go out. The other is... And you need to know that. You need to know that before six months have passed. Correct. <laughs> correct. It's, it's literally, this has happened, the communication's been blocked, and now we're going to the workstation to triage what happened, either remotely or on site. And the other issue is looking at the message and say, uh, as an end user, you know, what, what is there to learn? So looking at a message and saying, would I believe this, or is this common, the Nigerian uh, prince scenario, that no one should have been fooled by this? And then tailoring the uh, education to the user on, hey, this is some things to look for. Another thing is uh, we tell our users, and it does bombard us at times, hey, if you get something that you're not sure of, send it to us before opening it. We'll let you know if it's good, spam, whatever. Let us be your, your additional spam filter on top of all the other protections. And you know, we see a lot of the normal corporate spam, but occasionally we'll get a good um, attack come in mm -hmm. and have to go ahead and uh, you know, triage that and do all the analysis. Sure, and uh, so Cameron, how does that all fit into you know, how Homeland Security looks at this uh, government-wide? So there's a couple interesting points that have been made. Uh, Sean speaks about not just technical visibility, like others have spoken about, but about organizational visibility. Um, it, it is the case that we're, we're, we're going to have people click on things. Uh, I'm not sure that research presently has shown us that training people to not click on things is, is really effective. Um, it, it is a core part of my job to open emails that come to me that have attachments. It, it's, it's part of our responsibilities, particularly as, as civil servants that we serve the public. Um, so it's, it may not be the case that you're always going to block delivery, but I think it's important to maintain organizational uh, visibility such that when a user thinks that maybe they've clicked on something that maybe they shouldn't have, and there is some training that can let them know these are things to, to know that you shouldn't have clicked on, but to, to have an organization uh, be in the loop, whether that's your security operations center or your in incident responders, so that they know uh, to be able to, to walk back maybe what damage has been done. Um, I think it's also important to instantiate a regime where the systems that your users use, use two-factor authentication such that when you are phished or when you have a, 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 an email that may, has a link that you've clicked on, it, even if your credentials are entered, no real damage can be taken advantage of. If you have that within your user base so that they know, a second factor is always going to be requested, whether that's your, uh, you know, your identity card or whether that's a, a code that's on your phone. Having that awareness and expectation is really important for your users and makes things a little bit more unfishable. Sure, and uh, Captain Dickey, you don't want the order seemingly from the commandant to say all you know, cutters on the West Coast proceed nose to end or stem to stern due west toward Hawaii. Uh, you know, then there's a submarine there and you know, one by one. So, uh, but you also don't want that email to get out to their inboxes in the first place. You want to stop it at the firewall, but if it gets through, then there has to be a way to let people know, no, don't do that. So what are your, some of your strategies for protecting the whole chain of email events? Well, so, some of those, you're, you're, the, the first scenario is, is relatively simple to, to handle technically. If, if we have an inbound email no, that says it's from USCG.mil, <laughs> but it's inbound, it's, it's immediately rejected. Mm -hmm. So the, those emails should originate in our system, and if they don't, then, then right. we, we, we uh, re reject them. Uh, beyond that, though, we, we absolutely have la layers of, of protection. Uh, we're, we're behind the DOD's Enterprise Email Security Gateway, the EEMSG, and, uh, and you know, from, from DISA, that filters out about 85% of their inbound emails. We still, even with that filtering in place, we, we still receive emails that we don't want our users opening. So we, we have implemented a, a second layer of, uh, of security, interestingly, with uh, Proofpoint services that, that uh, ha have been very valuable to us. And we, we, we've looked at, you know, maybe we don't need this anymore because we're behind the EMSG, but, but we're still finding uh, emails with, with uh, malicious payloads. That uh, that we don't want to get through. So we're doing URL redirection and, and rewrite or URL rewrites and and uh, also payload execution prior to delivery to, to end users. And uh, those have been very valuable uh, layers of defense for us. 
Okay, we're going to take a break on that point, and when we return, I want to talk about the new binding operational director from Homeland Security, the DMARC standard, and how agencies can find strategies to get that done in the 90 days that they have. So we'll be talking about that. The guests today are Ping Luk, Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optiv. Bhagwat Swaroop is Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. Sean Lang is Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Congress. Cameron Dixon, National Cybersecurity Assessments and Technology Services Specialist at the Homeland Security Department. And Captain Michael Dickey, Commanding Officer of the Coast Guard Command, Control, Communications and IT Service Center. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Protecting Email, the Cyber Weapon of Choice. Sponsored by Optiv and Proofpoint, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Proofpoint's email fraud defense allows your team to identify legitimate email senders and block fraudulent messages before they reach your inbox. Optiv provides actionable industry-supported security program experience to integrate your technology investments into your environment. Together, they combine powerful email defense and security solution insight so you can detect, adapt, and respond to threats faster. Gain confidence around the security of your email domain with a streamlined and business-aligned solution with Optiv and Proofpoint. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Protecting Email, the Cyber Weapon of Choice, sponsored by Optiv and Proofpoint here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Our guests today are Captain Michael Dickey, Commanding Officer of the Coast Guard Command, Control, Communications, and IT Service Center. Cameron Dixon, National Cybersecurity Assessments and Technology Services Specialist at the, Hope, at the Department of Homeland Security. Sean Lang is Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Congress. Bhagwat Swaroop is Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. And Ping Luk is Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optiv. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And Cameron, I'm going to throw the first question to you because just days ago, the Homeland Security Department issued that binding operational directive concerning email security and the DMARC standard. And before we get into the innards of the standard and what it will do for email systems, Tell us the details of the BOD and some of the timelines and what, what is incumbent on agencies at this point. Sure. So the binding operational directive, that authority stems out of FISMA 2014 that allows the Department of Homeland Security, in coordination with OMB, to issue directives to the federal civilian executive branch agencies, so non-legislative, uh, non-judicial. They're, they're of course, uh, can, they can jump on those, but they're not required to. So the binding operational directive, there have been six so far. Uh, the first one some are familiar with where uh, my team, the National Cybersecurity Assessments and Technical Services team, performs networks, uh, internet-based scanning of federal agencies. And when we find critical vulnerabilities, those have to be fixed within 30 days. And that, that's been a great thing. Uh, 30 days is a long time. It should be shorter. And, and agencies do fix shorter. I mean, 30 uh, minutes would they, even be better. Well, <laughs> I think maybe we'll get to that point. But uh, other directives, uh, recently there was the Kaspersky Labs directive that mm -hmm. required the rescission of, of uh, Kaspersky-related products. Uh, this latest directive requires a couple things, both related to email and web security. For email security, it requires federal agencies within 120 days to get to, uh, to, to set a policy setting for DMARC of at least none. Now, they can certainly get uh, stronger than that, but they need to at least set a policy record. Yeah, and the shrink wrap in your agency at that point. That, that's right. They need to set on, on, in their DNS that they are, are capable of, of setting a policy of none, but also of receiving either aggregate, which are just like statistical-based reports, mm -hmm. or forensic reports. Uh, or failure reports, with her, which are pretty detailed, and that allows them to have greater visibility into their email sending infrastructure, it allows mm -hmm. them to get their, their hands around that. So that's within 120 days. Uh, other things that the directive requires, it requires, I believe, within 90 days uh, for agencies to set a Start TLS on their email infrastructure. And to start, start. Start TLS. That's mm -hmm. uh, start, t start TLS. And what it does is it, it doesn't actually force the encryption of, of emails, um, but it makes it uh, such that it, it is much harder for a passive pr passive attacker in the middle of traffic mm -hmm. to de to decrypt that traffic. It, it, it makes it so that uh, the user can initiate such that email is encrypted at least from their endpoint mm -hmm. uh, to the server. So server to server is an end to end. It's mm -hmm. not it's not something like SMIME or PGP. Um, the directive also requires federal agencies to do uh, the HTTPS on their uh, web 
sites and web services, as well as using HSTS. And strict transport security is a header that they set on their web, web servers, uh, such that it, it, you cannot click through certificate warnings, as well as uh, HTTPS is enforced. So it allows a, a couple of those things, as well as the rescission of some really legacy and poor crypto that even NIST has deprecated. So we still find those things, and agencies are now forced to turn so those off. So a little off. bit of cleanup of some of the old stuff. It really is. And mm -hmm. I think that this hits at the point of a lot of these uh, directives is both the security of federal agencies themselves, but also of the users who are using these. To, to be straightforward, I really care very little about the agencies themselves, but I care a whole lot about the citizens who use those systems and who are maybe sometimes required to put their information inside of those systems. So it, it's worthwhile to ensure that we have a, a base level of security, um, that we're, we're hitting the, you know, the low-hanging fruit. We, we can do good, and we are doing good. Interestingly, uh, there's a recent Forrester Research study, of, which they do annually, of federal websites, and more and more people are using them. But there's a level of distrust or worry about personally identifiable information and so on that uh, accompanies that high usage. So this kind of gets to that, that, whole, uh, that whole worry. All right, Bhagwat DMARC is now required or will be required. What is it and what can it do for security of email? That's a great question. So I want to demystify some of these protocols. Uh, you know, they, for some they roll off the tongue, for many they don't. Um, if you look at, in, in a simple form, there are already some protocols in play like SPF or DKIM, which essentially are simple ways for any organization to say, my emails will come from this IP address and it's electronically signed by me. Right? So any recipient email server can authenticate if this email is coming from that said people or not. However, DMARC takes it one step further. The main thing about DMARC, it's a superset of these SPF and DKIM, but it also gives organization feedback. So you get to know for the first time who's pretending to be you in the outside world. And I feel this is really essential to put together a 360-degree view of the visibility. People with the right email gateways will have visibility within the organization, and with DMARC, they'll have visibility the rest of the world, so they can piece together to get a 360-degree view. I am personally very excited to read about the, um, the binding operator directive that came out yesterday. As a leading uh, email security vendor, we believe uh, everybody should authenticate. And if you think about this is the last frontier which is left unauthenticated. You cannot get inside a building without a badge. You cannot enter a country without a passport. You cannot go to a website without authenticating uh, the, a certificate. But you can actually send emails to anybody today without, without authentication. And this is where we believe most organizations who are jumping on uh, DMARC adoption is really paving the way to restoring trust in their organization. Now, finally, I would also say, um, with this binding operative directive, I like the fact that the United States has joined a few countries around the world who are taking a leading position of requiring authentication in the federal agencies. By and large, it will raise the importance of authentication and also awareness in people's mind. Interesting. So, uh, Ping, is that something that, uh, well, I guess agencies will be doing it. What are some strategies for getting this done? Well, on the agency level, I can tell you. But, I mean, for corporations, it's going to be very difficult, actually, because most corporations are only willing to do it if, it, if they have to comply. So regulations, federal regulations that state that every corporation needs to have it implemented will mean that every corporation will implement it because they have to do it in order to do business. And otherwise, adoption will be very slow. They'll do it you know, based on the importance that whatever CIO, CTO, CTO, CISO puts in place saying we need to authenticate our email. For the mom and pop businesses, you know, if they try to set up their own email server, they're going to be like, what do I do? How do I, how do I comply? But for anyone who wants to work, you know, on a national level, and, and especially with the govs, then they will implement it, right? So mm -hmm. the, the easiest, fastest way for, to push corporations to adopt is to make it a regulation. Then they have to be compliant. And there are companies that have GRC groups that just their jobs are to make sure that we are complying with our vendors and government rules. Interesting. I guess if you're a small business or perhaps you could use it, ISPs have this and, and therefore we you would just use them. Right. right. <laughs> sure. I would like to make a couple of things to, points to what Ping uh, mentioned. 
We have seen a rise in organizations, even corporations, willingness to adopt DMARC more so in the last year than we saw ever before. And that's predominantly driven by the impact and the rise in business email compromise. Yeah. BEC was not a term five years ago that people were familiar with. Now it's a board level conversation. So I think these, this um, issue around email authentication, organizations are looking as a risk to companies' future, companies' uh, brand reputation, and hence we are seeing more organizations being, being willing. Um, Proofpoint acquired uh, assets of a company called ReturnPath, which was one of the original founders of DMARC.org and played a very pivotal role in DMARC's protocol being, being formed. But it was a slow adoption as being, being identified. But now there are natural forces moving in the direction, some driven by attack landscape and uh, risk to the organization. And I think certainly uh, policy regulations will help move it forward. Okay, yeah, Cameron. So most email is worthless. Right, I think we we all get email, and so we can we can say that that that's the case. Uh, one of the things that DMARC does is it makes it so that you can actually get rid of all the, the clearly worthless email, so that you can then you know filter out other things. But stuff that is clearly bad uh, that has been spoofed, um, that you can tell that is, is not legitimate, you can reject those at the mail server with, within the SMTP level, at the simple mail transfer protocol level. Um, th this new requirement within a year's time will require agencies to get to that point to say of their their domains that they own they need to set a policy of reject such that if if authentication failure happens within SPF and DKIM that it should just be rejected at SMTP and never even delivered such that we don't have to uh, look at it and see that it is worthless. Yeah, sounds like we have maybe the beginnings of an answer to the trillions of emails sent every day that nobody wants and uh, you know all the whole spam situation if if the spammers know that's just a, a rock wall. So it's important to understand, I think, that DMARC doesn't actually stop spoofing. So it, anyone can spoof. Right. That's, that's the nature of the, the protocols that we have. But it does make the detection of spoofed email much easier. And you go down the direction of whitelisting the senders rather than blacklisting, which is the fundamental shift. Yeah. OK, good. And so uh, Captain Dickey, is that something that uh, you're thinking about uh, adding to the acronyms that the Coast Guard uses? Is DMARC so, part of your thinking? And well, how, do you, it, how do you envision getting this done? We're, we're, we are absolutely interested in it and the, and the benefit from it. Uh, but uh, due to our location behind DOD's uh, EEMSG gateway, uh, the, the only servers that our email servers talk to are, are those uh, DOD security uh, hosts. They're, so DOD will need to implement uh, the D DMARC standard and, and conduct that filtering at that level. Uh, every email we mm -hmm. receive, though, comes from the EEMSG gateway. What about the implication for mobility, since the default way for mobile computing in large organizations is, is that you can't get away from people using their mobile devices for both personal and business. So you've got all these streams in that device. That uh, you know, so you, you got to isolate them and so on. And so, what what we've been able to do so far, and I, I think we will continue to do for the foreseeable future, is is absolutely separate that that you know, personal uh, per persona on uh, on a mobile device and the the you know government you know Coast Guard employee persona. Uh, so and and uh, access for the government persona is is through. A, a security gateway into our, our email architecture. So there's, there's no bleed over there, and, and we'll still be protected by the EEMSG and, and our defense in depth. And Sean, the Library of Congress would not be subject to the binding operational directive as, a, as an agency of Congress, but fair to say that this type of technology is something you would be looking at. Oh yes, uh, definitely. One of the, I mean, one of the plus sides is uh, we're allotted a little bit more flexibility in how we implement. Uh, but this is one of the uh, important protections that, of course, we're going to roll out, and we, we are looking at it. One of the difficulties we're going to have is because our customer base is so diverse, it's very easy for internally the groups that deal with other federal agencies or large companies to uh, implement something like this and not have to worry about the drawbacks. The issue is U.S. copyright deals with the American public. Who, anyone can copyright anything. And to have a risk of them not being able to reach back to, to copyright is something you have to look at, as well as the various uh, groups that do research for the American public. 
mm-hmm. you know, explaining to a, a small mom and pop ISP that we were blocking all of your messages because you don't have this is going to be something we're going to have to look at the best way to implement it and reduce the impact on all of our customers. Sounds like perhaps a whole of Congress approach might be called for, mm-hmm. but there's really no single overarching IT organization for Capitol Hill and the agencies. Uh, correct. We actually will all, um, our next meeting is next week, so we'll sit down and s- discuss how we're planning on implementing it in the best way to uh, reduce the impact on all of our customers. Because Capitol Hill does have some uh, rather you know, broad customers, be it cat police who have to exchange information with law enforcement. Okay, and uh, Bhagwat, you said something we kind of went by fast, a fundamental shift in versus blacklisting versus whitelisting. Just explain that one more time because I think that gives a lot of insight into what this protocol <laughs> Sure, happy to. So I think the fundamental approach is today anybody sends email to, to you, Tom, and your email server will allow that. That allows a perpetrator or a legitimate sender to send emails to you. The whole point of authentication with DMARC is that I will only let senders who pass authentications email to go forward. So if somebody, if I send an email from my email address at proofpoint.com, the email will reach you only after your email gateway authenticates, yes, this email did come from Bhagwat, yes, this is had the right credentials from proofpoint.com. So in a way, you're cutting through the noise and only allowing the legitimate email to flow through. However, this is where things get interesting. Today, to move from a very black and white world to only you know, whitelisting, there is a lot of gray in between. And this is where having a sophisticated tool so you can parse it out in a more automated way really plays, uh, plays, plays a big role. All right, so a lot to think about, a lot to do. I want to thank today's guests because we are out of time. They are Ping Look, Executive Advisor for Security and Awareness at Optive. Bhagwat Swarup is Executive Vice President and General Manager for Email Security at Proofpoint. Sean Lang, Chief Information Security Officer at the Library of Congress. Cameron Dixon, National Cybersecurity Assessment and Technology Services Specialist at the Homeland Security Department. And Captain Michael Dickey, he's Commanding Officer of the Coast Guard Command, Control, Communications, and IT Service Center. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term, Optive Proofpoint. Thank you for listening to In Focus, a deeper look into protecting email, the cyber weapon of choice, sponsored by Proofpoint and Optive on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search In Focus. 